Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Jonathan on Money. This is episode number 34, and I have an action-packed episode this week. First, in my talking points this week, we're going to discuss if college is still a good investment. Given the rampant anti-Semitism on college campuses and faculties of these institutions doing everything that they can to facilitate this hateful speech, along with the extremely high cost, this is definitely a subject worth revisiting. We also lost a legend in the investment world, Charlie Munger, who was Warren Buffett's longtime business partner. He died at the age of 99 and was full of wisdom. I'll share several insights and quotes from him. As always, I'll spend the last half of the episode answering listeners' questions as well. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. So the higher education landscape has changed drastically over the past few decades. In the past 20 years in particular, college costs have increased exponentially. According to information from U.S. News and World Report, tuition and fees at private national universities have jumped about 132%. At public national universities, tuition and fees have risen about 127% for out-of-state students and 158% for in-state. When I discuss college planning strategies with clients, I typically focus on how to afford these steep tuition costs. Usually, this involves utilizing tax-advantaged 529 college savings accounts and other financial strategies. However, in light of the recent anti-Semitic protests on college campuses around the country, it made me reconsider the traditional approach to college. Frankly, over, over are the days of just going to the most prestigious school a student could get into. Students at their parents and their parents must be introspective when determining where and if they should be going to college. They must recognize that this choice helps set the stage for the rest of a student's life and will have a profound impact on a child's future. So let's go over some important points that every from college bound student should consider. First, what are the benefits of college? The main reason most people go to college is to make more money. When college is done properly, it will achieve that goal. In fact, to in fact, according to data from Federal Reserve, college graduates are half as likely to be unemployed as their peers who have gone to who have only a high school degree. Additionally, typical earnings for a bachelor's degree holders are 84 higher than workers whose highest degrees is a high school diploma. The challenge is that not everyone knows how to do college right. It's crucial to attend a university that sets the students up for financial success by preparing them for real the real world. It's also important to choose a major and pursue a degree that has value in the marketplace. Finally, the network of one builds in college can be helpful for life. Many of my friends from college are professionals in other fields. Those lifelong friendships have led to mutually beneficial financial opportunities. A school that does not prepare you for financial success is an expensive hobby and a bad investment. Next consideration are the financial challenges. One of the biggest challenges with many colleges is its cost. It's not uncommon for folks to solicit my help in figuring out how to deal with their student debt load years after graduation. For folks to be in their mid-30s, 40s, or older that still have several hundred thousand dollars in student loans is a shanda. 
saddling a student with an insurmountable level of debt and no realistic strategy for how to repay it is setting them up for failure. It's important to understand the cost and determine if your career goals warrant that expenditure. Now, there are also religious challenges. At a speaking engagement last year, one of the other from presenters was telling me how he had kids in college. He went on to say that it's crazy for anyone to go to secular university. Parents spend 18 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars to give our children a yeshiva education, he said. Why on earth would anyone throw it all away by sending their kids to a place like Harvard or Columbia where they are immersed in a secular culture? Initially, I found this comment unsettling. Who wouldn't want to go to Harvard? By the time I got home from the event, I realized what I really found so troubling. He was right. As a parent, I expend so much effort, time, money to ensure that my children are immersed in a Torah lifestyle. The thought of throwing them into an environment that is totally devoid of Yiddishkeit seems like a bad strategy. Granted, there are some exceptions, and Chabad and Hillel on campus can do great work, but that is the minority. Intermarriage rates in this country are already sky high. Sending kids to live at a secular university for four years meaningfully increases this probability. There's no university in the country, no matter how prestigious, that is worth jeopardizing living a Torah-oriented lifestyle. Now let's discuss the anti-Semitic challenges. In the weeks since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack on innocent Israelis, many students and professors have shown their true anti-Semitic colors. Between students signing their declarations that they are standing in solidarity against Israel, violent protests, anti-Semitic speech, and congressional hearings where the presidents of these universities defended this speech as needing to have proper context, many business leaders have distanced themselves from some of the most prestigious universities in the country. CEO of Pershing Square Capital Bill Ackman said he would not hire any Harvard students who signed an open letter blaming Israel for violence. Ackman said one should not be able to hide behind a corporate shield when issuing statements supporting the actions of terrorists. Apollo Capital Management CEO Mark Rowan of University of Pennsylvania alumnus, who has given $50 million to the school, plans to oust the leadership of his alma mater. Rowan's anger at the school stems from what he believes is an atmosphere of anti-Semitism. Administrators failed to quickly condemn the recent deadly Hamas terrorist attacks. Nor did they condemn a, fe a featured speaker at a festival that was hosted on campus during the high holidays who spoke about death to Israel. One final example is hedge fund billionaire Leon Cooperman, who gave $50 million to Columbia, his alma mater, saying he'll be halting all donations in reaction to students protesting against Israel and an assault of Jewish student on campus. Cooperman said in an interview with Fox News that, Quote, these kids in college have dreck for brains, and dreck is the Yiddish version of the word he actually used. This is just a short list of examples of anti-Semitism raging on college campuses today. If these students are the highest and brightest our country has to offer, then the future does not look bright. Is this the type of environment in which you'd like to ch your child to be immersed? It's often said that you are influenced by the people with whom you surround yourself. Choosing certain colleges means surrounding yourself with rabid anti-Semites who spew hateful speech and intellectually dishonest slogans. Now let's discuss potential solutions. Given the challenges of high cost, lack of Yiddishkeit, and rampant anti-Semitism, what are college-age students supposed to do? The answer is to determine what your goals and reasons for attending college are in the first place. What career would you like to pursue? Does that career even require a higher education? 
For some careers, a certificate program or apprenticeship may be significantly more useful. If you want to focus on learning, perhaps a college degree where you can get credit from learning in yeshiva may be a good option. In some fields, an undergraduate degree is only a formality. The real key is graduate school. In such a scenario, find a program that will allow you to finish your undergraduate degree at an accelerated pace instead of hanging around for four years, wasting time and money. Additionally, there are wonderful accredited Jewish universities where students can get a degree from a well-respected institution within a healthy Torah atmosphere. Regardless of what road a Jewish student decides to pursue, it is clear that there are now more options than ever before. Simply going to the best school you can get into is far from a sound approach. I'm sure that there are some cynics listening to this thinking back fondly on their time at Secular University. The reality is times have changed. Today's college experience is much different than what it was 20, 30, or 40 years ago. The prices are exponentially higher. The indoctrination of students to embrace a warped, a warped world view are more prevalent, and anti-Semitism is more widespread. Taking all these factors into account, it's time to rethink how young people approach the investment of higher education. Okay, with those talking points uh, out of the way, as a you could uh, let's move on to the next part, which is my quote. And as a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at parkbridgewealth.com forward slash newsletter. We're currently at 7,000 subscribers and growing, so feel free to sign up and invite friends as well. Now for this week's quote, I've decided to do something a bit different this week. In light of Charlie Munger's passing, I'll share several of his quotes. They don't need, they don't need expounding upon since they are succinct pearls of wisdom. I will let each listener internalize his words and come to their own conclusions on what they mean and how they apply to their own lives. Okay, here we go. To get what you want, you have to deserve what you want. The world is not yet crazy enough place to reward a whole bunch of underserving people. I constantly see people rise in life who are not the smartest, sometimes even, even the most diligent, but they are learning machines. They go to bed every night a little wiser than when they got up, and boy, does that help, particularly when you have a long run ahead of you. The great investors are always very careful. They think through. They take their time. They're calm. They're not in a hurry. They don't get excited. They just go after the facts, and they figure out the value, and that's what we try to do. If you want to be a good investor, you have to have a long-term perspective. You have to be willing to be very patient and wait for the right pitch. And when you get the right pitch, you have to be ready to swing hard. You can't just take a little teeny tiny swing. You have to swing with all your might. The best thing a human being can do is to help another human being know more. I always laugh when people talk about how they're going to learn how to invest. It's not a subject you can learn in a few weeks. It takes a lifetime to learn how to invest properly. The big money is not in the buying and the selling, but in the waiting. I don't have to be an expert on every company or even many. I only have to be able to evaluate industries and the leaders within them. You're not learning anything if you're not making mistakes. I believe in the discipline of mastering the best that other people have ever figured out. I don't believe in just sitting down and trying to dream it all up yourself. Nobody's that smart. At the Berkshire Hathaway Annual General Meeting of 2000, when somebody asked him about internet stocks, Charlie said, 
If you mix raisins with turds, they're still turds. If you rise in life, you have to behave in a certain way. You can go to a strip club if you're a beer-swilling sand shoveler. But if you're the Bishop of Boston, you shouldn't go. Every time you hear EBITDA, just substitute it with bullshit. If you're going to live a long time, you have to keep learning. What you formerly knew is not enough. If you don't adapt, you're like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. I'd rather throw a viper down my shirt than hire a compensation consultant. And finally, I'll end with the following from the Wall Street Journal, which said, Munger retained his sense of humor into his 90s, even though he was nearly blind, could barely walk, and his beloved wife Nancy had died years earlier. Around 2016, an acquaintance asked which person in a long life he felt most grateful to. My second wife's first husband, Munger said instantly. I had the ungrudging love of this magnificent woman for 60 years simply by being a somewhat less awful husband than he was. I think there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in all these quotes, and I hope listeners enjoyed that tribute to Charlie Munger. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at Jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com, and, and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. The dollar is strong right now compared to the shekel, and I want to ultimately own a place in Israel, but it might not be for a few years, and I'm afraid the shekel may be such so much stronger by then. I'm pretty intent on investing in the shekel, so the question is more around what factors I should consider about how to exchange dollars for shekels. Uh, spe so speculating on how currencies will move relative to one another is a fool's game. It's impossible to do. If you want to minimize your risk, one option is to just buy shekel now and add to that position regularly so your funds will be tied to the local currency where you intend to buy an apartment. This may turn out to be a poor decision relative to dollar or not, but at least your funds are in the local currency. Alternatively, you can diversify your currency exposure and only put some in shekel. Or you can keep everything in dollars and maybe things will work out for you. Or you can buy Israeli equities and be tied to the local economy that way. If you're also wondering how to implement all this, most major investment banks can allow you to buy currencies or get exposure to Israeli stocks. The bottom line here is there are no great answers when it comes to currency forecasting. Okay, next question. My performance has sucked since 2020. I just want to get 7% annualized returns consistent, consistently. Where would you recommend I, do, I go for that? No investment is consistent. Every area of the market has its stay in the sun and then goes out of favor. U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds, high-yield bonds, cash, tech, energy, consumer staples, real estate, everything goes through cycles. They'll all have great years and will also have sucky years. If you want consistent returns, you have two options. One, invest in a Ponzi scheme. You'll be, be under, you will be under the illusion that your returns are consistent until you get caught and end up with a big fine or in jail. Two, a fixed annuity from an insurance company but there is trade-off for doing anything like that, including no liquidity, inability to take your money back once you make the investment, and the returns won't look as attractive until you are much older, and the insurance company is willing to bet that you will die soon enough to make this annuity worthwhile for them. Remember, if you want attractive returns, you really need to also accept the fact that your performance will be terrible some of the time. If you have a sensible portfolio and stick with it for the long term, you will do well. That's the way investing works. Next question is, I just turned 27. I make $260,000 in my job. It was tough to get this job, and the job itself is very stressful. 
I dread going to work in the morning, but I deal with it for the money and I save and invest the vast majority of it so I don't have to do this forever. For context, I have around 500K total investments right now. Recently, an opportunity came up that's much more interesting and pays well, just as just not as well as my current job. It's around $150,000. The new opportunity seems like something I would really enjoy. However, I'm not sure I can stomach $100,000 plus an income drop. Should I continue to grind it out and pack away cash for a few years or let myself go down the road more interesting or down the road that is more interesting? Here are some questions you should be asking yourself. Will your long-term financial situation really change all that much if you make less money? How much do you hate your current job? How much better would other areas of your life be if you weren't so stressed at work? What are your prospects for advancement in the new role? Like, can you make more money to support your lifestyle going forward? Are there any other perks in the new role that can help soften the salary blow, like work from home, shorter commute, ben better benefits, Hawaiian shirt day, a sick holiday party, etc.? Will this type of opportunity ever come knocking again? The bottom line here is you're, you're 27 years old and have a nice nest egg for your age, so taking some calculated career risk is perfectly fine to do. At this stage of life, unless you have a family and kids that are depending on this paycheck, you should be able to try something new. You also need to be practical when it comes to your career. Taking a job that won't position you to afford your lifestyle is a bad decision. If it will allow you to pay your bills in the short term and long term, then it may make sense to go for it. Okay, I heard there was a 6% penalty for over for over contributing beyond the contribution limit to a Roth IRA. It seems worth the penalty overfund the Roth IRA, pay the 6% tax that year, and then have decades of tax deferred growth. What am I missing? It's a 6% penalty every year. So your return would need to be a Ponzi scheme in order to, for it to make that this stick work. It won't be that high to make up for this steep penalty. Play by the rules and you'll be in better shape financially. Taking shortcuts rarely works. And the final question this week, what is geographic arbitrage? So geographic arbitrage is when you work and make money in a high paying part of the country, but live in a less expensive part of the country. So you get the benefits of big city money, but your dollars take you further. This is what many people realized during COVID. They can work for a New York City-based job and live in a state that is much cheaper, has lower taxes, cheaper housing, and is overall more pleasant. Beyond COVID, I also encourage folks who are approaching retirement to think about geographic arbitrage to help ensure that their nest egg goes further and enhances their quality of life. For example, if you worked your whole life as an attorney in a big law firm in New York City, have a house in the five towns or Teaneck, you should sell the house and take your lifetime of earnings and move to Ohio, Texas, Florida, or Bangkok, where your funds will go further. Geographic arbitrage from, for most retirees is a no-brainer. Okay, that's it for questions this week. Feel free to email me with any questions you have, and I might answer them in a future episode, and you could reach me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. Please be sure to rate this episode and rate the show five stars on, I, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and do share it with a friend. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, 
please email me at Jonathan at ParkBridgeWealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.